the gospel according to Matthew chapter 27, starting this morning in verse 27. It's been a couple of weeks since I got to preach. It's so good to be back in the pulpit after two weeks out. What a joy and a privilege it is to study and to preach God's holy word. Thank you for opening your Bibles with me. We're going to see precious things together as we read them. But they are not easy things. These things we're going to read this morning are not happy things or light things or soft things that we're going to read today. No, we are smack dab in the middle of the worst day in human history. The worst day of Jesus' life, because this is the day of Jesus' death. For many weeks now, we have been following Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew through that crucial, holy, passion week. And for the last several messages, we have been focusing on that last crucial 24 hours. The last Passover meal with His disciples that He made all about Himself. The predictions of Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, the disciples' desertions. The agonizing face-down prayer in the garden and the Son saying to the Father, Your will be done. The arrest of our Lord. Think about that sentence or that, that phrase. The arrest of our Lord. Where they laid hands on Him and they bound Him and they drug Him off to court. The Lord holding back. 72,000 angels from wiping out the crowd. And we keep saying, it just gets worse. It just gets worse. So much injustice. Remember the Jewish phase of the trial that came first? Where all of the, the false witnesses come forward but their testimony doesn't agree, and yet they still convict him. And what does Jesus do in his defense? Nothing. He stays silent. He confesses, yes, he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man who will come one day to judge, but other than that, he stays silent. Total majesty, total Self-control. Jesus is in total control of himself and mysteriously he's in control of the whole situation. And it just gets worse. They spit on him. Just think about that sentence. They spit on Jesus. And they struck him with their fists. And they toyed with him. And then Peter denied that he even knew him. And Judas killed himself without repenting over Jesus. And last time we read about the Roman phase of the trial. The second set of trial. When Jesus stood before the governor. And it just gets worse. It is so unjust. 
And still Jesus makes no reply. He is obviously fulfilling Isaiah 53 right before our eyes. Matthew can see it and he shows it to us. Even Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate's wife wants Pilate to release Jesus. He tries. He tries to free Jesus. He says, let's kill Barabbas and I'll give you Jesus. And they say, crucify him. The crowd is stirred up by Jesus' enemies and they, they shout, crucify him. So cowardly Pilate tries to wash Jesus off of his hands. And the crowd is willing to take him on their hands. This is where we left off last week. Verse 25. Look at that. Let Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, scourged with a whip, with metal or bone shards on the end of it, and handed him over to be crucified. That's where we left off last time. And it just gets worse. My temptation today is to rush through this next part. I mean, we've spent some time on this. And we know it, right? We know this. I'm not going to read anything or say anything to you today that you don't already know. Probably. It feels like we've gone slow long enough. We've been at this for a long time. And, and this part is terrible and gruesome. Awful. So I'm tempted to just run, to just race right through it. Read it and move on. When I preached Mark and Luke and John years ago, we went through these, these, the corresponding parts of the story there much quicker. But I think it's right for us to slow down and consider what's really going on here. Because Matthew has a lot to say and he wants to be heard. For example, this passage is thick with irony. Lots of little ironies. Lots of things are ironic in this story. Lots of things are actually the opposite of what is meant even though what is said is ironically true. There's a lot of upside down and backwards things going on here that God is orchestrating. Matthew doesn't miss any of the divine ironies, and he doesn't want us to miss them either. But we might have to go slow to catch them. So today I want to just progress from verse 27 to verse 37 under this title. We've already sung about it this morning. A crown of thorns. You can feel the irony right there, can't you? A crown, but it's made of thorns. And it just gets worse. 
Let's pray together one more time and then read it together. Let's pray. Lord, I'm not going to say anything that hasn't been said from this pulpit for 128 years over and over and over again. And that's good because I don't, I don't want to invent anything. I don't want to be novel. We just need to rehearse. We just need to remember, remind ourselves, stir ourselves up to remembrance of what is really going on in the world. But even though we're repeating what's been repeated over and over again, and rightly, I pray that it would also be fresh. That by your Spirit, you would connect us to this old, old story in a new way. Help us to see what's going on and to take it in so that it changes us. We pray this in the name of the one that we've sung about and that we're now going to read about. Amen. Matthew 27, 27. Follow along as I read it. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Let's stop there. And let's just sit with this for a few minutes. The governor's soldiers are the Roman soldiers. He's officially going to be executed by the empire for being seditious. He has been found guilty and sentenced to death. So before they crucify him, they decide to have a little more fun with him. They have already tied him to a post and whipped him with a sharp whip. Now they drug him into the praetorium, Pilate's palace, and the Jerusalem home of the Roman garrison. And they call all the soldiers that are present that day to watch their little game. All hands on deck. We're going to have a little fun today with this criminal. This, um, what the NIV says is the whole company of soldiers is upwards to 600. 
Roman soldiers. It's probably whoever's on duty that day and is present and not out keeping the peace in the city, but it's whoever's there. So between 120 and 600 Roman soldiers present for this event. And these guys are here to mock and to shame our Lord. Crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was done the way it was done to be a warning to others. Don't step out of line or this is what's going to happen to you. So it is intentionally shameful. It's not just painful, it's shameful. It is humiliating as a cautionary tale for anybody who might cross Rome. You don't want to do it. This is what's going to happen to you. So that everybody who passes by crucifixion says, I don't want to be that guy. Jesus is convicted of being a king, so they play that up. They take off his clothes in public, and they put a fake royal robe on him. Maybe one of the Roman Roman soldiers wore those red uniforms. Maybe it's one of their red cloaks they put on him. And verse 29 says, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Now, we don't know how, how long the thorns were. They could have been very long, depending on what kind of tree. There's lots of different kinds of thorn trees in Israel. What we do know was that it wasn't comfortable. These thorns were meant to mock him. King, look at your crown. And they're meant to hurt him. They're meant to dig into his flesh. And they're meant to make his scalp bleed. Did you ever have a wound to your head? There's always a lot of blood, right? Head wounds have a lot of blood. When I was a kid, I was swinging at, uh, on a, um, we're at a rest area, and I was swinging on the, the little building thing, and I fell and I hit my head, and I cut open my head. And uh, I still remember it. Uh, I don't remember all the details, but I know that I had to have, go to the hospital and get uh, stitches because I can remember them laying me down, telling me it's going to be fine, putting me under, you know, and then I come back uh, from that. Little kid, scared, and there's blood everywhere. This is a crown made of thorns and pressed into his head to make blood everywhere. And they put a staff of wood in his right hand, perhaps a, a bamboo cane that they would have been using for issuing the beatings. They put one of those in his hand. And then they kneel in front of him. And they mock him. Hail, King of the Jews! But he is. That's the irony here, right? He... He, he is the king of the Jews. They think they're so funny, mocking our Lord, putting their crown on him. But he is the king. He's the king of the Jews, and he's the king of all. Just look at him and you know it. Look how regal he is. Look how majestic. Look at his bearing. Look at his self-control. 
the man of sorrows we've just been singing about, right now he could still call down 12 legions of angels, but he's holding them all back because he has a plan, because he's carrying out the Father's plan, because he's fulfilling all of those prophecies. From the Old Testament, all, the, all those prophecies, and all the prophecies that he's been making. How many times in the Gospel of Matthew has he been saying something like, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knows. And in fact, he's chosen it all. And so he holds it all back. All of this unjust evil is strangely enough going according to his plan. And he is perfect in self-control and sovereign control. And so he stays silent at his contemptuous coronation. A crown of thorns. Now what is that when Matthew records that they say, Hail, King of the Jews! This is the Gospel of Matthew, so what? Keep your eye on the ball. It's all about who is this Jesus. It's irony, because it truly answers the question, who is Jesus? But they weren't asking the question. They were missing it with their disdain and their condescension. Verse 30, they spit on him. And it just gets worse. Verse 30, they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. What's on his head? And they're taking his staff and they're beating his head? Perhaps they're nailing in the crown of thorns into his cranium? And it just gets worse. They mock him some more, and then they take off the robe in public. And they put his own clothes on his bleeding and broken body, and they lead him away to crucify him. And we can't really handle what that is. Jesus is forced to carry his own cross. Criminals headed for crucifixion would carry the cross piece, the, the horizontal bar, the horizontal piece from the place of conviction to the place of execution. And there they would either get tied to, or often when the Romans did it, nailed to the cross piece and hoisted up seven feet into the air on an upright stake that was often reused for the next victim. Wally was telling me about a friend of his who is an evangelist and travels across the world literally carrying a cross on his shoulders and using it as an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. He's been in a whole bunch of countries and walked across our country several times. But our Lord Jesus has been beaten and scourged, his flesh torn open, he is wearing a crown of thorns. He isn't strong enough physically strong enough to make it to the upright stake. 
Jesus is in danger of dying on the way. And the Romans don't want that. They want their crucifixion. So verse 32, as they were going out, because they always crucified people outside of Jerusalem, crucifixion was a curse that needed to be outside of the camp. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Imagine being pressed into that service. Simon is a Jewish name, but Cyrene was in North Africa. So either Simon was a diaspora Jew in what is modern-day Libya, or he was an African native who just happened to have a Jewish-sounding name. We don't know. One thing we do know is that it wasn't Simon Peter carrying the cross. Simon Peter has denied that he even knew Jesus. He's not volunteering. Don't listen to what Peter says. Look at what he does. He denies Jesus. He doesn't take up his cross. More on Simon in a minute, but now we come finally to the cross. Been getting ready for this for a long time, but we aren't ready. Verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Could have actually looked like a skull. Like the hilltop could have kind of had that formation to it. Or maybe there were just so many skulls around. Because this is the place where they executed the criminals. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull place. Our word Calvary comes from the Latin version of that same word. Calva is Latin for skull, so Calvary and Golgotha are the same thing. It's the place of death. And there it just gets worse. Verse 34, there they offered Jesus wine to drink. Sounds like a first note of mercy. But it was mixed with gall. Bitter, sharp, acidic, perhaps even poisonous. But after, teaching, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. It's possible that the wine would have served as a mild sedative, so, so maybe Jesus was refusing to be dulled at all. But with that gall in it, it would have made it too harsh to drink. In other words, this was more mockery. Here, here, drink this. This was more mockery, and it was also fulfilling more prophecy. Psalm 69, 21, the innocent sufferer says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And then it just gets worse. Verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Can you believe how matter-of-fact Matthew is here? He doesn't even say, and then they did this thing called crucifixion to them. 
to him. They just says, and when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. He doesn't, Matthew doesn't describe what they did to Jesus. I don't know if he thought everybody just knew what crucifixion was or if he can't bring himself to describe it. Here's what crucifixion is. They nail somebody to a cross and he has to pull himself up to breathe and then how long can you stay like that? Unable to stay like that, you fall back down and you hang hang from the nails, bleeding out and suffocating for hours. Pull yourself up, try to get some breath, can't hold yourself, fall back down, bleeding out, turning blue. With a crown of thorns on his head. And no clothes on his body. Perhaps a loincloth to satisfy the propriety of the Jews. But most places in the Roman world, they didn't even give the crucified that. Because they were going to give as much shame as they could heap upon this person as he suffered on that tree. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. No cloaks, no belt, no sandals. Jesus has nothing now. Absolutely nothing. And yes, that's another fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 18. And then it just gets worse. Verse 36, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. It's like they're bored. They probably were. They've seen this show before. They've killed guys before like this in this way, sometimes hundreds at a time. They've humiliated guys before and now these nailed up there, they nothing left to do, just wait. <sighs> pull up, strain, bleed, collapse, suffocate, pull up, strain, bleed, collapse. But these guys aren't allowed to leave. It's their job to sit there, watch the man die. I mean, somebody might try to help the poor schmuck. No, they've got to wait around at least till shift change. Nothing to do. So boring. Why is he there? Don't take your eyes off of the ball. This is the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is never missing a chance to tell us who Jesus really is. Verse 37. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King 
of the Jews. That's why he's here. He's been convicted. He claimed to be the king. And Caesar won't have it. The Gospel of John says that Pilate had this written in three different languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The Rosetta Stone up there on top of it. Nobody, it's written there in your language. In Latin, the initials of the four main words there are I-N-R-I. If you ever see a picture where Jesus is on the cross and above his head, I-N-R-I. That's the Latin for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that's who he really is. Wearing the crown of thorns. Now I'm afraid we are we too are just going to leave Jesus hanging there. Lord willing we'll start in verse 38 next week. Right now though as we prepare to go to the table together I want us to think about the implications of what we've just read for our lives today. How should we live? If this is what happened, then how should you and I respond? I've got three applications to mention, and they all help to focus our hearts as we go to the table. Number one, hail Jesus as your king. What they were doing ironically, we should be doing unironically, truthfully. For real, with our hearts. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. And He is the King of the universe. Hail, King of the universe. That's why we came this morning, right? We should each repent of our sins and receive Him as our Lord. Because he is even more Lord now, if we can use that kind of language, because he wore the crown of thorns. Hail King Jesus. Marvel at his self-control and his sovereign control and bow before him. Not just physically, but with, with your life. Acknowledge Jesus' lordship over every area of your life. This week I've been reading a book by... One of my friends, he's written a book called uh, Relation Slips. And it's about taking seriously the call that as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. What if we took seriously the call to reconcile our relationships? To not let things go festering. Let bitterness run unchecked. But to go make things right with somebody. That's what the Lord says to do. And we say, yeah, but that's hard. I don't know if I feel like doing that. Hail Jesus as your king. Not just with words, not just singing it, but doing it. Remember all the stuff we read in the Sermon on the Mount? Yep, yep, sounds good, I agree. Kingdom, woo, inside out, upside down. But are we doing it? Number two, 
thank Jesus as your Savior. Hail Jesus as your King and thank Jesus for being your Savior. We should be grateful to Jesus for what He went through for us every single day. Another great irony at work here is not only is Jesus the king when they mock him as king, but his crucifixion is not ultimately humiliating, but salvific. He's saving us here. He's pulling off the fulfillment of Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 53. He's pulling off salvation for his people. I mean, we look at it and we want to turn away. But at the same time, we should say, thank you. Here he is doing what he just said he was going to do before, just hours before at the Passover meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. So when they put the crown of thorns on him, he was saying, Take my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to him and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then the blood came running down off of his head and his back and his wrists and his feet. He poured out his blood. Thank him. Thank Him for taking the beatings. Thank Him for taking the mocking. Thank Him for taking the spitting. Thank Him for taking the humiliation. Thank Him for wearing the crown of thorns. One more. Follow Jesus as your model. Hail Him as your King. Thank Him as your Savior. And follow Him as your model, as your example. Now, Matthew doesn't emphasize that right here, but he does elsewhere, and so does the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle Peter said about this day, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And Jesus said himself in Matthew, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I wonder, I just wonder, if Simon of Cyrene isn't a picture of that for us. He's history. Matthew tells us because it happened. But I, I might wonder if also if Matthew included that detail as a picture of following Jesus ourselves. Simon might have been forced at that moment to carry the cross, but carrying the cross is what you and I are supposed to do. Not Jesus' cross, but our own. And there is some evidence that points to the fact that Simon eventually became a Christian too. According to Mark, Simon has two sons, one named Alexander and the other one Rufus. And there's a guy named Rufus who is named in the book of Romans as a follower of Christ and a co-worker of Paul. Very likely the same guy. So perhaps Simon became a follower of Jesus and took his own cross in discipleship. Regardless, you and I are called to die to ourselves and to live for Jesus, following His perfect example.